The Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Hello and welcome to the Magic Book Club podcast. Tom Price here and welcome to a brand new year of books. In times like this, books, well, they really are a tonic and I think they're going to be a massive part of what gets us through this. I mean, sure, vaccines are good, but books really are better. Well, lucky for us, they're not better, by the way. Let me just retract that straight away. Well, lucky for us, we're kicking off the year with an incredible debut from Robert Jones Jr. Uh, And as a little fix for the January Blues, we've got a mind coach joining us. Uh, So get in touch with your inner chimp because Don McPherson is going to be here later on uh, to give us some secrets to get through this year. So pour yourself a cuppa or get your running shoes on or let the dog off the lead and get walking. And we'll find out just what there is to know about some of the best books to kick off the year with. Now, the first book is fantastic. I am so thrilled to welcome this writer to the show. The Guardian called it an outstanding debut. USA Today describes it as a magically written debut. We've got the brilliant, brilliant man behind this, Robert Jones Jr., with us now all the way from across the pond. Robert, hello, can you hear me? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for writing this book. The Prophets is, it's, do you know what? I started reading this book, Robert, on the, on, pretty much on the stroke of midnight on New Year's Day. So this is very much the first book of 2021. And you've set, you've set all my other books a frighteningly high bar. I loved it. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Um, how does it feel to, to, first of all, to have your debut book out there in the world finally? Surreal. Um, it, it doesn't feel real to me. It's um, something I've been working on this book for the better part of 14 years. Oh, wow. Um, and to finally have it out in the world for other people to read and think about and comment on is overwhelming. Um, and it, I, I still haven't fully internalized the idea that it's happening. <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing these interviews like with wonderful people such as yourself and I'm doing a book tour and it still feels like there's another Robert that's doing that, and then there's the Robert that's me that's like, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> was it always your dream to get uh, to become a published author? Was that always what you wanted to do? Yes, from from childhood, really. I um, my father uh, bought me my first comic book when I was four years old, and I used to start um, when I was about six. I started rewriting them, mm-hmm. including myself in them, <sighs> and realized that I had a knack for it and um but never really thought that it could be a profession because you know i didn't know any writers uh i saw people who uh did labor and went to work every day for nine to five sort of jobs but i never knew that people could actually do writing as work until i was maybe a teenager almost an adult um but yes it is something that i was always in my heart to do i just didn't realize i had permission to do it it's really interesting you should say that how, how did you how did you get yourself into a world where you were with people who were determined and knew that it would happen for them and you could pick up on that and make it happen for you as well how do you how do you force yourself into that world I, really it started with realizing that um hey wait a minute the books that i'm reading are written by people who treat this as a profession as an art how can i get into know people like this and that came along with school. Once I decided that writing was the thing that I wanted to do, despite objections from family or people who thought that um, writing was perhaps a hobby, um, but nothing that you could use as um, uh, to take care of yourself. Um, I went to school and I met other writers. Um, And uh, social media has also been helpful with that 
of late um, introducing myself to, to um, other writers, successfully published writers, um, and forming a community with them. Um, but it, it really started in school. It's the first time that I ever met other people who wrote and wanted to become published writers. Do you still have to detach that voice that says, you know, the, sort of the family voice? I think a lot of people have this. That if, if they have a background and a family that's, that assume writing and creativity in the arts isn't for our family, that's not what we end up doing. Do you have to detach <laughs> that voice? Does it still exist with you? Yes. Um, it, it, I think it's just from the upbringing that there's this idea that the arts is frivolous. <laughs> yes. um, um, that it's it's something that you do as a side thing, but you're, you're really, first of all, you're a man, so you should be doing something manly, like, I don't know, construction mm. <laughs> or something to that effect. But um, I, was, I always gravitated toward the arts and writing in particular. It wasn't until I think my mother saw an interview with me on a local radio station here that she believed, oh my goodness, he's really doing this. This is really what he should have been doing the whole time. Um, and that family voice is gone. My family is extremely proud of me, but there's this inner critic, uh, my, my own inner opponent that still says, are you worthy of this? Is this what you're supposed to be doing? Shouldn't you be doing something that's um, more laborious than this? Um, so it, I still have that a little bit. You should take that inner critic to a building site once a year. Just make work, work there for a day and go, right, inner critic, are you happy now? Look how, look how badly I've done that wall. Right? I think you're right. Uh, so this story that you've taken on, it's, I mean, arguably it's, it's the most important American story. And before we get into that, tell us more about you. Tell us about your story, Robert Jones Jr. Where, where did you grow up? Where are you from? What, what is your background? Give us, a, give us a, a brief outline of that. I was born and raised in New York City in the United States. Um, I lived in Brooklyn for most of my life. Um, grew up in a section of Brooklyn called, um, right on the border of two neighborhoods called Bensonhurst and Gravesend, where, um, where I grew up. I grew up during the 70s and 80s in that neighborhood. There was a lot of racial tension. Um, I have a, a really good story about that racial tension too. Um, often when we were let out of school, the, the neighborhood children would, we, we were black and we lived in a housing project that was sort of surrounded by Italian and I Irish immigrants. And um, every day after school, they would chase us home with bottles and bats and chains back into our neighborhood. And there was one time where we were being chased home and a librarian opened the library door, pulled me in. I, I couldn't be more than maybe nine or 10 years old, locked the door and said, you're gonna stay here until it's safe for you to go home. And she sat with me and she read to me and she let me read books and, and, and just go around the library. And just from that moment on, librarians became superheroes to me and, and, and just solidified my, my love of reading and uh, my love of writing. And um, so um, librarians are intimately attached to my story in terms of um, the writer, Robert. Yeah, I love that. Look what you did, racists. You chased me into a library. You empowered me. You armed me with knowledge. You armed me with a pen. It's beautiful. In, in a literal sense. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, were you, were you scared? Was it, was it a scary time to, to grow up with that kind of background? Yeah, it was, it was incredibly scary. I'd, I'd, 
I don't know if you've ever heard this story. Um, I think it took place in 1989 of a young gentleman named Yusef Hawkins who was killed here in Brooklyn and it made like national news and maybe even international news. Um, I was only two blocks away when he was murdered. Um, and so, yes, it, it was a very daunting and haunting and scary time to live in that section of Brooklyn or maybe in all of New York City, to be honest. Yeah. And you'd think that when writing or you could assume that when writing you escape to, I don't know, a more comfortable time, a better time, a, you know, a time to try and get comfort from it. And you very much haven't. Tell us tell us what where The Prophets is set and what what this story is. The Prophets is the story of Samuel and Isaiah two enslaved young men on a plantation in antebellum mississippi here in the united states and it's about their love um how that love between the two of them and it's a romantic love um affects everyone around them whether um enslaver or fellow enslaved and how it transforms that plantation and leads that plantation down the path that it takes um it is a daunting period to write about because it is um i slavery and violence are synonyms it was a very violent period of um, american history mm -hmm. so it's really difficult to write about those times so what i wanted to do was imbue it with a sense of humanity let the reader understand these individuals not as enslaved people but as people and how yes they faced a, a, a untold cruelty unspeakable violence but they also loved they also danced. They also experienced joy. Yeah. And it's a story that I think you allude to this. It's a story. It, it must have happened. It must. Have. I know it's fictional, but it, it you know, the, the actual physical story about these, these men. But, but it must have happened. And why has this story never been told before? I feel like this is you, you've, un, you've opened a door into this world, which I, I, you know, I'm familiar. Well, as kids, we learn about the, the boats going from Africa to America hundreds of years ago and that can so easily become background music and it can so easily almost we can almost become desensitized to it as horrific as it clearly is but by taking this approach to this story you've you've I don't know you've you've relit those embers and it's 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 incredible what you've done well I really was answering a call from Toni Morrison who said um, if you cannot find the book you wish to read you must write it because as an undergraduate student, I was um, an Africana studies minor. Um, creative writing was my major. Um, and I read all of these wonderful works by wonderful Black authors, whether it was slave narratives or books on race theory and politics and so on. And something was just quite confounding to me, which was there was no mention of Black queer characters prior to the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s. Mm. And I thought, well, where are the queer people in this community? Did they just pop up out of nowhere in 1929 and say, hello, here we are? Um, but no, I, and so I began to research to determine if I could discover um, black queer people prior to then. And what I found was few and far between. I found in a book called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, which is a slave narrative, she talks about how a slave master raped a male slave. And then in Toni Morrison's own Beloved, I found um, there's a section where one of her characters, Paul D, is um, sexually assaulted by an overseer. And I thought, okay, but what about love? 
And from that question, the prophets was born. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's, and it's not just, you know, it's not just set during um, in the antebellum time during the actual, uh, it's what's called empty, isn't it? This, uh, yes, oh, it's empty. Ugh. Yes. Uh, but also you, there's several chapters set before they're back in Africa. And those are fascinating as well, because that looks at how same sex relationships were approached and were looked at then as well. Yeah, what was incredibly fascinating to me during my period of research for this novel was discovering that prior to European colonialism, prior to Christian missionaries coming to the continent, many African societies treated what we now call queerness as just a normal part of life. There was not even terms to distinguish heterosexuality from homosexuality or bisexuality. All of it was just love and sex. Um, Esther Arma, who is a um, profound artist and activist, talks of, she's from Ghana, and she talks about how her grandparents, if you said to them, what is a homosexual, they would say, I don't know. But if you describe to them what you meant, they would go, oh, oh, love, yes, of course. Um, because their, their um, sort of cultural metaphor was love and sex were like, the land, it had no boundaries. And discovering that, um, in contrast to what I was raised to believe here in, what, in, in a Western country, was just mind-blowing. Mm. And I wanted to sort of share that discovery with the reader. To, um, and in particular, people in Black communities who have been taught to believe that um, queerness is um, a part of sort of like a trauma we learned as a result of being enslaved. Um, and that it is something that is ungodly because we uh, have been um, programmed to be Christians. Um, I wanted to explain and show them that no, that is actually not um, true, that um, blackness and queerness are indeed compatible. And it is, in fact, our um, sort of Christian indoctrination and European um, colonialism that taught us that that is not true. Yes, yes. So that's interesting. So that so it's become a reaction to... to it, to, to black history to think that so that there sorry to just to clarify so there was this assumption that queerness was a was a reaction to slavery was was people doing what they had to do almost like some, in prison or something and, it, it was it was almost like we were all on on the continent of africa heterosexual huh. but then when we were enslaved we were uh, uh traumatized and um shown untold brutality and that forced us to become something degraded like homosexuals. Mm. Um, that this is the result of a trauma, not something that's natural to our human nature. Yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary, extraordinary. And, and do you do you feel the trauma? Obviously, there's there's so many levels of it here. The thing that, the thing that kept striking me, Robert, when I was reading this, was just how long this went on for. Reading this book and, and, and thinking, you know, if it, and, so many atrocities in human history happen over five or 10 or 15 years. This went on for such a long time. And that is something which I, I, I really took away from this book. And it really affected me. It, uh, uh, the weight of those centuries is so heavy. Yeah. To think that in Brazil, it went on even longer um, than in the United States. That uh, actually blows my mind when I think about it. But is that right? I didn't we, know that. Well, so, yeah. Uh, uh, Brazil... In Brazil, Brazil has the largest population of black people outside of Nigeria. 
and their their slavery ended way after the United States. Like they they went on for at least another twenty to fifty years of in, of slavery, um, and and brutality in the United States. We always start with the year sixteen nineteen and say that that is when. Um, uh, the first slaves were brought to um, the continental United States, but that's actually not true. Um, the Spanish actually brought slaves to um, Florida, what is now Florida, and in, in the 1500s. Right. Um, and then slavery technically ended in 1865, at least on the record, um, but it actually endured a lot longer and then transformed into something else like what we now think of as the prison industrial complex. But yes, centuries and centuries of brutality that have um, stained the soil of this country. Um, and we have yet to really reckon with what that means. Um, and, and, and as a result, still deal with the fallout um, and the, the transformation of, of, of um, anti-blackness in this country. So how does this feed into your your feelings now about things like Black Lives Matter, about moments that that are happening in America today? You know, it's 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 very easy to read this and say this is dead history. This is not dead history. This is happening now. There's there's still effects of this. The tales of this are, are still being felt. When you see you know images, which I never thought I'd see, the Confederate flag, you know, making it to the Capitol as it did the other day. How how, how does this book help to give that context? How does it how does it help us to tell that story? What I learned in writing this book was that um, racism or anti-blackness, as it were, is incredibly resilient. So it it changes to fit whatever era and whatever the the mores of the the society it's in will accept. So in in the seventeenth century in the 18th century there was in the 19th century there were overseers who whipped the slaves and we don't have those anymore but we have police officers who kill unarmed black people with impunity and we we no longer have cotton plantations where we're picking cotton but we now have the prison industrial complex which disproportionately locks up black people for the smallest most trivial of offenses and also locks up innocent black people so in a way, things have not changed as much as we like we would like to think that they have. And Black Lives Matter is a reaction to that understanding that um, we are still being regarded as, as the Constitution once put it, three-fifths of a human being. We are not considered full humans. And we are being regarded by the other members of the society, by the institutions, by the government itself, as something less than human when we are utterly, utterly human. So when I read the prophets, I think, wow, we are still enduring what our ancestors endured. We're just calling it by different names and it's taking place on a different landscape. Yes. These are yes, yeah. This is exactly it. These are the seeds of what we see today, and you read it in this book, and you know, and and you see. So, this is we've talked about the 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 huge, the weighty themes around it, but that would make this book feel if if it would almost overburden the book, and yet the characters are so good, the moments are so good. Timothy is fascinating. Talk to us about the character of Timothy, the son of the plantation owner. Secretly, Timothy is one of my favorite characters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because Timothy represents for me someone who is wrestling with the ideas that he was raised to believe his traditions and what 
what new information he was exposed to. So he is trying to become a better person, trying and failing. And that is the, from a writerly point of view, such an interesting complexity that you have this character who believes himself as good, who really thinks he's trying to be good, and he is still um, haunted and still trapped by um, the um, situation he was raised in, the situation he's raised in to be. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I find him utterly fascinating that he too is wrestling with some of the same things that Samuel and Isaiah are wrestling with in a way. Um, and he's trying to be a better person and not achieving it in the ways that he would, e even he himself would hope. And that's just a fascinating, fascinating place to write from. Yeah. And he's, he's the only character who has as, as close to it has been to the future by going north and by escaping the south and escaping that world he's seen a vision of, of well it's not there yet by any means but he's seen a vision of the direction of travel and he's as close to us as it's possible to get and yet he's still completely broken and and the only white character in that book that is looking at these black characters and saying i think we're wrong i think they might actually be just as human as us mm. yeah yeah it's it's a remarkable piece it really is brilliant and it is you know it's very important for listeners to not think that it's that this will overwhelm them that this is a oh it's a depressing read or or that this is oh you know it looks pretty serious and difficult it's it's beautifully written it's lyrical it's poetic you fall into this world you don't leave it you don't leave it despondent you may feel anger and you will bear witness when you read this book which is an important thing to do but you will fundamentally enjoy it and, and it's because of characters it's because of moments like that that you know the, the stories in it are absolutely magnificent did you did how do you detach yourself from it, Robert? How do you, how, you know, you're, you're, you're writing about trauma here. What do you do? How do you look after yourself to, to put your pen down and, and feel okay after, after a day writing about this kind of thing? It was extremely difficult, I tell you. Um, there were moments where I got lost in it and felt the pain of it. Mm. Um, and I realized that if I'm feeling the pain of it, the reader is going to feel the pain of it. So I am going to have to um, balance this with something beautiful. Uh, it, it's either going to have to be in the language. It's going to have to be in the, the love between these two characters. It's going to have to be in something, some reprieve the reader is going to need. So I tried to write as beautifully as I knew how. I tried to imbue as much hope into this book as I possibly could so that when the reader finishes it, whatever they endured in reading it and thank you so much for, for enduring that um that they left it with a renewed sense of humanity um and a sense of hope so um, i that is how i got through it and i'm hoping that is how the readers will also get through it all you have is love at the end of, of something like this that's that's what it all boils down to love when you have those characters so well portrayed you see it beaming off every page and and your love for writing it as well is very clear Talking of love of writing, what's next for you, Robert? What 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 are we what are we going to be looking at next, please? What's, I, what's on the horizon? Before the Prophets was purchased by publishers to 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 be, become a novel, um, I had started working on a second novel, which takes place in a little bit of a more contemporary setting. I'm writing in the 1980s, okay. um, in New in New York City, um, uh, a, a landscape that's a bit more familiar to me. Um, 
But I had to stop all of that because now I'm in the profits mode and I'm promoting the book and I had to work on it with my agent and editor. And um, so once I'm um, outside of this mode where I'm promoting the book and, and thinking and, and talking about the profits, I will return to the second novel that I'm working on. And hopefully it will not take me 14 years to produce. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to go from the profits to the time of profit. That's what we're talking about here. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. The Reagan era, as we know it in the United States. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, Robert, it, this has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. An absolute pleasure. I hope that... Um, I hope you're feeling well, I hope you're feeling a sense of hope at the moment. How do you feel when you look at the landscape of your country after the events of 2020? Now we see the 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 silence of uh, of that man on Twitter. Do you do you have a renewed sense of hope? You know, Tony Morrison once said that when we encounter situations like the ones we're in, um the the the, the instinct is to despair. And she said that that is not the job of the artist. The job of the artist in these precise moments is to go to work, that we are to produce the things that give people hope, whether it's painting um, uh, paintings or is uh, uh, reciting poetry or writing books or dancing or producing music, whatever it is. This is the time that the artist is supposed to go to work because we are the bearers of, of hope. We, we're supposed to um, not only make the society look at itself, but also to, to provide some sort of path out of the mire. I do feel a sense of hope, particularly when I look at the accomplishments of black women in the political movement, such as Stacey Abrams and what they were able to accomplish um, in terms of um, voter um, enfranchisement in the state of Georgia. Um, what When I look at the fact that um, the majority of the country rejected the current president and and his um, sort of approach to governing um, that was divisive and hateful and just chaotic. Um, so while I do see his supporters um, really showing a really dark side of humanity, I have to remember that the other half of the country showed um, something that was much more hopeful. And so I do have hope for the future, particularly because the younger people were really really showed out and really um committed to justice and 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 right thinking yeah. and so i don't want to despair and i do think that there's hope for the for the country and perhaps for the the entire world yes good no despair run for the libraries that's what we must do run for the libraries. yes and yes. when we're there get out the profits by robert jones jr it's a wonderful novel thank you so much i i really appreciate that I was so scared to, to release this book into the world, so I'm so happy that people are connecting with it. Yes, definitely. And I, it's, it's important that we connect with it in the UK. That, you know, this sense that slavery is here in the UK, we've learned to say that's not us, that wasn't us, that's, that was America's problem. And I think that in Britain, we need to recognise our part in that and, and how that still plays out today in the same way that you were saying earlier, you know, the, the roots of the, the problems with race in America started with slavery and we need to we need to recognize the same things in this country so it's an important book for this country as well wow amazing it's 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 funny small little anecdote um my my great uncle on my father's side traced our roots and he was able to trace our um ancestors back to enslavement in England uh, of all places <laughs> yeah so yeah indeed so actually so your ancestors were actually owned in England or or by English slave owners in England, 
by English slave owners. They were called the Habershams. That was the name of the family that owned my family. And um, when they started to suspect that in, there was a tide turning in England where slavery was being abolished, and it didn't seem to happen at, in one fell swoop, it happened in stages, mm. they petitioned the king for land in America, and he granted them some land in Savannah, Georgia, and they moved the entire family, um, including my family, here to the States. And um, one of those people, um, the eldest son named Robert, did not um, survive the, the, the um, transport. So his, his younger brother, um, his, his, the second oldest child, named his firstborn son Robert, and every firstborn son down to me is named Robert in that line of my family. And the, the, the land that the Habershams owned, um, there is a street, uh, a very major street in Savannah, Georgia, that is called Habersham Street. Um, they, it still bears their name. How do you feel about that? It, it is overwhelming to know it, um, to be connected to, to, to an actual um, history where I could look up at the sign and say, those people owned my family. This is the, the land where my family dwelled and toiled. This is, where, this is the land where the first Robert could not make it and the second Robert was born. Mm -hmm. um, it's just overwhelming, but it also imbues me with a sense of pride that um, the, the second Robert lived so that I could live. Yes, <laughs> it's yes. just amazing. It is. It is. And now to see your, you know, to see that name, the, the, the family name, Robert, on this book, it feels appropriate. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for joining us on the Magic Book Club podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a joy. So here we are then. It is lockdown number three, lockdown the third. Uh, and I think for everyone, it's becoming increasingly difficult not to catch a case of the, the winter blues or the post-Christmas blues, or of course, the, the COVID blues, the news blues. But we can beat it. We can beat it, guys. Just one listen to this podcast could help. And we've got British mind coach Don McPherson with us now to give us the secrets of mastering our monkey mind. This is a fascinating topic. I'm so pleased we've got the, the Don of the monkey mind on the line. Hello, Don. Hi, hi, Tom. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. I'm, I'm very good. Thoroughly enjoying, thoroughly enjoying your book. Tell us a bit about it. Well, actually, it's it's all been a rather bizarre trip. The the first lockdown, I'm afraid, got rid of all of my excuses as to why I, I hadn't got time to write a book. I never thought I would. I never thought I could. I never really desired to. Um, I think my dad would be shocked that I'd even read read a book, <laughs> never mind written one. Uh, so okay. in the end, some people had asked me over the years to write about the monkey, uh, the monkey mind. I wish I could claim credit for the concept, Tom, of the monkey mind, because it is mm. brilliant. It helps people of all ages, from uh, people as young as eight who I've worked with up to old farts like me. And um, it, it's just a mechanism to help us understand uh, self-talk. And I thought phrases like self-talk were a bit psychobabble, a bit tired. And I fell upon this description of the voice that we all have in our heads, chattering away, advising us. Uh, yes. that the Chinese Buddhists thought it resembled a restless monkey swinging from tree to tree, aimlessly chundering and chattering on about everything and commentating. And that resonated with me because my monkey, Mike, as he's called, was all over the place. I, I am fascinated by uh, several things. First of all, um, this idea that, well, you never thought you'd write a book. And I've just, you know, reading the, uh, the opening uh, chapter, you talk about yourself, your, your manner of writing 
is so approachable it's so down to earth and it feels like i mean talking about voices in your head and i know that's the 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 base unit of all reading but it does feel like someone's just sort of nestled up next to you and they're just having a chat it's a very laid-back approach which i like because sometimes this kind of book and this genre of book and this doesn't fit into that sort of genre of book that sort of self-help thing can take on a rather patronizing pompous self-important tone and you 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 puncture that very effectively well i'm absolutely delighted to hear you say that um checks in the post tom because that (laughs) i mean if if more people say things like that after they've read the book i will i will be genuinely delighted because Mm. i didn't set out to do that people have often said in the emails that i that i send to people uh clients that i'm working with that it's i write as though i talk which my wife would tell you is a bit dangerous if you're a if you're if you're a curmudgeon gobby northerner Uh, (laughs) but that's the way it worked out i guess is that the book is is quite close to how I talk. I mean, obviously, it had to be edited and uh, preceded, otherwise it would have been 750 pages. But yeah. I am really, really happy to hear you say that that you liked that that it sounded like I was having a chat with you. Um, mm. It's just sort of come together, I guess, at the right time, uh, where people. I've had more and more people coming to me, especially obviously with the lockdowns. Yes, do, do monkeys love lockdowns? That's what uh, I was monkeys gonna, uh, absolutely uh, hate lockdowns because yeah. they uh, they want to, the the worst. One of the things that the monkeys really hate is when they feel a lack of control. The, the monkey mind wants to be in control of everything. Wants answers immediately to 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 problems and solutions, and that's its that's its job. Its main job. The main job of the the monkey mind, Tom, is in neuroscience is is the conscious mind. You know, I love simplicity. And if we go for this, we have one brain and two minds. And I think the easiest way to understand the monkey mind is that it's the conscious mind, the life's filter, the sat nav, trying to make sense of your life. When the hell's this lockdown going to finish? When are we ever, are we ever going to get out of this? Will I have a job? The monkey is, I'm afraid, rubbish at being in the now, the famous here and now. Terrible. And so if the monkey's trapped in a house or, or relatively trapped or feels trapped, and some people are, aren't they, in their front rooms, I mean, students mm. or, or, you know, old grannies um, stuck in a front room and maybe can't get out physically or mentally. And, mm. and when people say, oh, this thing's the same for all of us, we're all in the same boat. Well, we might be in the same massive boat, but it's not the same for all of us. One, but one common thread is that we all have these monkey minds saying, when the hell is this thing going to finish? What can I do about it? And it's very, very difficult to, to, to be in the now. It's the most, it is the most difficult of all mental skills to teach and to learn because these days it's really difficult to be in the now. Very much so. No, I, it's, it's incredibly hard. And, and you know, I, I read uh, years ago The Chimp Paradox, uh, which fantastic book really helped me hugely um, but the thing that I found very challenging about that this central premise of controlling the monkey because because it is everything the monkey says has got an exclamation mark or a question mark at the end of it everything there is no acceptance and and it's this idea of on one page of that book it says this is how you do it and it's like no 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 there's more to it than that it's there's I think that what I like about this book is it spends more time thinking about the tools. You know, that's so important. But you see, Tom, these tools, again, I wish I could claim credit. I wish I could, you know, say, I want copyright and all these tools. But 
that would be ridiculous. The only reason the tools exist is because I learned them from the people I was working with. Uh, mm. Very quick story. Many years ago, I was working with a Formula One racing driver uh, who was um, very successful. He was on pole position in Monaco. And it was Saturday night. We were having a bit of a chat. I was his mind coach. And uh, he started whinging about, oh, I hope the weather's okay tomorrow. I hope the car doesn't break like last year when the, this failed because he was on pole as well. It was all whinge, whinge, whinge. And mm. I got on well with him. So I said, um, you know, why don't you just cheer up and think more positively? You're on pole position at Monaco. You get a good start. You disappear into the sunset. You know, see you later. No one can overtake. What's the problem? You know, mm. think more positively. And he said, and um, I'll have to watch my gobby northerners coming up here. He, he said, I am. <laughs> is, there some, is there some effing and Yes, effing I am bleep, bleep sick of you psychos telling me that I need to be calm. I need to think more positively. When's someone going to show me how to do this? And, and you know, like in those cartoons, when someone draws a balloon on a head and you come up with this eureka, this idea. But it was a bit of a bollocking that he gave me. But, but I actually. It was, a, it was a tipping point. It was a magic moment for me because I mm. thought, hell, I thought I was doing a decent job. And mm. it was a good relationship with him, but it was a gentle rollicking. But honestly, Tom, I thought, you know what? There's a lot, just like you said a few minutes ago, there's a lot more to this than just telling people that they need to do that. And the reason why self-help books sell, and I've read thousands of them, is that you get to the end of even a good self-help book and you go, yeah, okay, that was really interesting. Now I know what I'm making a mess of. But so many times you're left with the question, so what am I supposed to do about it? How, how do I actually fix this lack of confidence that I've, I've got? How do I deal with my uh, glossophobia, um, etc.? How do I deal with... What's glossophobia? Oh, that's a fear of speaking in public, is yes. It, it, so, yeah. Yes. So, so, well, let's stop dancing around it. Let's try, let's try and sort of nudge in a little bit closer. So what are a few of the sort of headlines from this book? And obviously, again, I don't want you to sell the power any silver. People have got to go and read the book. But what are we looking at? What are we talking about? What are, the, what are the, the, your favourites, if you like? Well, I get, are you talking about the tools, specifically the tools? Yeah, I think, I think people will want to hear by this point. People will want to, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, your approach to writing it and, and why you want to do it. And I think a lot of people recognise that and understand that anxiety at the moment is really hard. Okay. Let me, what can we do? Right. Well, there is, a, there is a bit of a sequence, but you won't have time for it. I'll give you the, the abridged version. So if we start with the first tool, which is your starter for 10, literally, then uh, this is the most extraordinary one. It's a special technique that uh, I sort of blended from um, techniques that go back thousands of years. I call it Zen breathing. And this is, the feedback I've had of all the tools, Tom, this is the one that surprised mm. me most. Um, and I was surprised by this. Even a cardiac surgeon thought this was his favorite tool. You would think a cardiac surgeon would know how to breathe properly. Yes. But as we get older, probably from the age of roughly seven, we st the monkey minds start developing and then producing a lot of adrenaline. And yeah, there's, a, there's, a fire, there's a, an alarm going off all the time. And we think we're in a war and stress comes into our lives, peer pressure. And we become what's called upside down breathers. We start breathing predominantly from our chests uh, and we don't know we're doing it. And we shut down the diaphragm, where the tummy, where the abs, if you like. And that's, you were born breathing properly with your tummy moving up and down and your diaphragm working, sending oxygenated blood around your body and, and keeping your brain cool, acting as a fan. That's how we were born. If you watch dogs, cats, animals breathing. But we humans, we quite quickly, quicker than ever now, 
with internet and the kids growing up so fast, we become upside down breathers. We do not breathe efficiently or effectively or correctly. And the Zen breathing is uh, really amazed me how effective it is because the first thing that goes belly up when anxiety comes a calling is your breath technique. And you, the, you don't even know that you've lost your, your, your correct breathing. And that actually is like pouring petrol on a fire because if you're anxious and now you're not breathing properly, you're not getting proper oxygen in, then your body starts to react negatively to the anxiety. And, and, and that's when things can turn to custard quite quickly. So the first thing to do proactively or reactively is if you're feeling anxious or you're going into, a, into an anxiety provoking situation is check your breathing. Anyway, so the first tool is the Zen breathing, which you've, obviously you've read it, and it is a special technique. Uh, where I think people get it wrong on breath techniques, and this is my, only my opinion, but it is as a result of feedback from people that I've taught this technique to. The trick, Tom, is to make the out-breath longer than the in-breath, and just simply slow your breath down. If you do those two things, there's a bit more to it, but if you do those two things when you're feeling a bit anxious, because yeah. the first thing that happens when you get anxious, besides losing your breath, is that you talk quicker, you move quicker, and that's when you, you start to, to feel a bit of panic. Then your heartbeat speeds up, your blood pressure goes up, you start getting hot, a bit sweaty, and so on and so on. It triggers a whole lot of physi physiological um, stuff that we don't find very pleasant. So the first tool is, <laughs> sounds really... Uh, I used to, <laughs> breathe. <laughs> breathe. Yeah, breathe properly. So Zen breathing is number one. Now, number two is the one that might be a bit more um, interesting, a bit more creative. And this came from the F1 guy who said, right, I want to know how to think more positively. Fed up with you just telling me how. Go away. Come back. Tell me how. And the how to, how to think more positively is this. And anyone listening can, can try this. And it's really quite enlightening. So it's about having a better relationship with this voice in your head, the monkey. Better banter with the monkey. You don't have to give it a name, Tom. Oh, they'll be fascinated to know what, well, what your creative I mean, mind comes up with. I think narcissistic lunatic in my head, I'm going to call it Trump. <laughs> that works for me. Well, that's the first monkey that's been called Trump. But uh, anyway, <laughs> that's good enough. Uh, okay, but the tool to be more, con how, to, how to think more positively, how to be more positive, how to check yourself taught, is, is to start tuning in, to listen to your own monkey. And, and, what percentage is negative? What just in a, in a curious way, not in an obsessed way, just listen a little bit more in a childlike way to what your own to what your Trump is saying. Now, don't be alarmed if what you hear is predominantly negative, because the brain's factory settings, so to speak, are set to negative because the job of the brain is to keep you safe. So we all should attempt to think more positively anyway, because as I said, the brain setting is set to negative. If you start to tune in to what your Trump is saying, and you, you think, well, that's unnecessarily negative. I'm not that bad at that. And is it really that bad? Is, it, is, it, is there nothing I can do about it? Am I really in that much trouble? Am I really gonna lose my job? Or is that just Trump um, going off and having a bit of a meltdown? In other words, Tom, you start to challenge your own self-talk. But, but mm. as I said, in a gentle way, not in an aggressive way, otherwise you get in a bit of, you can provoke it. And then you can start adjusting. You can actually start changing your own language. 
and, and start talking what I call progressive language, to actually change words that are negative or even ambiguous into stronger words that, that mean more to you. You know, words have different meanings to people, words have power and energy. It's, it's, just, it's to challenge the monkey if, in fact, your own Trump is, a, is more negative than you think is appropriate. And that's mm -hmm. how you can start to tune your own brain. This is the tool number two, and it's called Mind the Monkey, with an exclamation mark. Um, and that's how, you start to, that's how you start to think more positively. You literally start challenging. You put the monkey on trial and say, am I really that bad? Is he that much better than me? Is she that much? Am I that, really, am I that badly off? Is there's nothing I can do about it? And you just start to galvanize the troops. You start to connect the inner resources that you've still got that have got a bit lost. So that's yeah. tool number two. Love it. I love it. These are great. These are great. And there's many more in this book, Don. And let's, um, you know, let, let's let's hold let's hold fire just in case uh, people just think, well, I've listened to the podcast. I don't need to get the book now. Um, it is it is a fascinating read, and it's a really helpful read. And you know, taking on the monkey. And the reason the monkey works so much as a uh, an, uh, as a metaphor, a simile simian simile um it is that it is it not only is it chattering and it has energy they're strong these primal creatures inside us they're physically strong so it's this isn't something that's going to work overnight is it this takes time doesn't it yeah i mean uh, this is the problem isn't it that whatever you whatever you say to people they would love you would they would love you to fix them people want to be fixed and, and me too you know we want to be happy immediately we want the lockdown finished now we don't want any negativity we want to feel joyous and happy and be happy ever, laugh, uh, ever after and healthy. Of course we do. But some things, most things in life, I'm afraid we have to make a bit of an effort. It's a kind of two-way deal. And we do have to get off our backsides and make some effort. And that's always the problem with, with books that say, I, I've read books that say, and here's 10 exercises that I want you to do. And make a note, put them in a, in a book, write them all down. You think, oh, bloody hell, I haven't got time for that. Or you might mm. start doing it a bit like going to the gym and New Year's, you know, yes, yes, you start yeah, doing, yeah. oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, maybe I should do that. Sounds like a good plan. But, you know, basically, I'm, I'm a lazy sod. And I think most of us <laughs> do sort of do, do, do move a bit that, in that direction. And I don't, I don't like to have to do homework, uh, as you know, from going back to school days again. I'd rather somebody fix me. But it, it isn't that simple. But I'm hoping, Tom that I've got, I've cut through the psychobabble in the book and it, it is simple in a way and maybe maybe fun, I hope, to actually use these brain tuning tools. My, my real goal is to teach people to be their own mind coaches, which is, I said earlier, is bad for business. But if I can teach one person to be their own mind coach, then that person can teach their kids or somebody else in their family that's struggling. The most yeah. wonderful thing I've heard is when somebody had said, Oh, and a, um, a friend of mine or my sister, my brother, suddenly um, became very anxious about something. And I was able to teach him or her that some of the tools I learned to deal with, with their monkey. I explained the monkey concept to them and, and they really liked it and they're happy. That really, really did, did and does give me pleasure. If, we, if yes. we, we can spread a sort of positive pandemic instead of these bloody viruses and Absolutely. And that's the, that's the way to do it. Teach, teach people, show them how to. Don't just tell them what to do. Show them how to do it. 
Yes, absolutely. Let's sp- let's spread the virus of wisdom. Let's get that done. Yeah. Uh, Don McPherson, thank you so much for joining us on the Magic Book Club podcast. How to Master Your Monkey Mind. One of the few good things to come out of lockdown one uh, is available now. Don, thanks for joining thanks us. Thanks for having me. There you go. That's all we've got time for this week on the Magic Book Club podcast. Join us next time for more of your favourite authors and stories. And in the meantime, happy reading. Happy reading.